it's okay. I, I got it. That's okay. That's okay. Every there's a, supposed to be at least one ignoramus in every episode. Oh, oh hello. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Municipals, hosted by yours truly, Dylan Welch, uh, Mr. Britt Bird over here to my right. Hey there. And uh, David Many joining us on the phone from Washington D.C. And as always, we are produced by Monsieur Piches. Hey, Pesh. How's it going? He okay. wants to be a disembodied uh, presence in the show, not yeah. really even known by name. Fine with me. So today's show. Well, how are you doing? I don't know. I've oh, oh, I guess I guess yeah. You're right. There is a little bit of. Um, thunder. Yeah, you're right. Okay, we have to we have to do the check-in. I guess a lot a lot of, a lot of stuff has happened. It's um I, I've thought about several different things I could lead in with, but I, I kind of just want to uh, talk about uh, the select bus service right now. Get a tip of the cap to the select bus service. I've been using it more lately. Select bus service is basically kind of like express buses. Uh, Julia, my girlfriend. In New York. Yeah. So it's like. Well, okay, so like, um, it's kind of like bus rapid transit, but a little bit less so. So in transit circles, people kind of hate on SBS a little bit because it's like not quite the real deal. However, I'm giving I'm giving some props to it because uh, Julia, my girlfriend, recently moved back to Crown Heights, and to get to Crown Heights from Bed Stuy, the bus is like your best option. So I've been on it as of late, and man, they've got like the time boards installed so it like feels like it tells you when they're arriving it's like some oh, nice oh my god yeah. Britt, we get it you live in bed you have a podcast your girlfriend lives in crown heights yeah peaches speaks i mean this is this is a this is a urbanism podcast but anyway first first thing dangerously towards self-parody right now first thing that uh, i had a first experience on the sbs though um and that i got uh fair checked um the SBS runs on like you board at all doors and you just get like a receipt um, at the curb and then you go in and it's kind of like an honor system uh, and presumably you might get checked by a fare inspector at any time. It had never happened to me before until recently and it was fortuitous because I'd just been talking about how we never gotten checked and how you know sometimes you have to really flusteredly get the little receipt while the bus is there and might leave you and uh, we um, the trip before did not have time to get on and did not have a receipt. And then that very one, we were running to make it. And some two people who had just left the bus handed us their receipts and they were our guardian angels. Cause the next very stop, the, the MTA police came on and oh, like wow. demanded receipts to look at. And it was kind of intense. So we got saved by the bell there, but it was, it was very, uh, fortuitous. I didn't even know that there was an MTA enforcement team in New York, but apparently there is. Yeah, I got, I got. Yeah, I mean, you gotta have transit police, right? Oh, God knows. Right. I, I mean, I know that I was certainly, and I, I, I admit this. I'll turn myself in. I, I uh, was a free rider uh, in the Los Angeles metro system because mm-hmm. we didn't know how it worked. I know, I know, my crime is so, so. Uh, so we've done so it. Grievous. But I didn't know but how. They it don't have tokens, so it can't be that insane. Yeah. Well, it was very strange because you know, coming Shout from New York and, and and Boston and just the East Coast generally, I'm not familiar with the West Coast's uh, free love and ways. It's, like, so. it's, it's everywhere. Like in Germany, that's how all of the transit works for the trains as well. Not in China though. So like, no. I guess all of the transit systems that I've I've interacted with have all uh, been like, hey, here's the gate. You can't pass the gate unless you pay the fare. Right. Whereas in L.A., there's like a gate and it's open and it's sort of inviting you in like, sure, you know, 
I mean, there are pros and cons. Well, they gotta, they gotta welcome people in any way they can. Right? Yeah. <laughs> I guess. Yeah. Well, I mean, the pros are that it's it's easier and allows quicker boardings, and it, so there are less delays. But then I have experienced, like, even in Houston, where they've built newly built a light rail system, if you aren't familiar with it, even if you're a resident of, like, how the whole fare payment works, it does seem kind of intimidating. So it kind of raises the psychological barrier a little bit, but it's a trade-off. You know, once you get but used to I, it. Can I ask you, are you a, a bus rapid transit literalist? I feel like there is the debate over what is BRT and what isn't is, like, way overblown. Yeah, I'm not. You know, I'm I'm pretty pro SBS right now. I actually I rode the same route on local the other day, thinking that it would be about the same, and I was rudely reminded how it's not. Mm-hmm. So I'm pretty pro SBS, and I think the question of what counts as, you know, BRT or not is, uh, you know, losing the forest for the trees a little bit, or vice versa. Because um, so, I mean, you know. it's just there are ways of improving bus service that like makes sense even if you don't call it brt i think yeah i feel exactly. like people think that that's settling for less sometimes yeah exactly and a uh, shout out uh to transit center in new york which actually oh, has yes. uh released a uh report on that exact topic recently about improving um new york city's uh bus system through those kind of little nudges that aren't necessarily you know reinventing the wheel or reinventing brt so tip of the hat to that but anyway that's that's been my list. I think of the hat is uh, is that copyrighted by the Colbert Report or something? Maybe I don't know. Maybe but, sue me, but, come at but, me. But uh, but but Donald Trump has also stolen, put on notice. So yeah, you know, I don't know how strictly Colbert will be enforcing this. Yeah, we're fans of the show, by the way, Stephen. If you're listening, who did put on notice? Was that also Colbert? He put Iran on notice. Yeah. Oh, who uh, did? Who I don't know. Yeah, yeah, like on notice? yeah Donald yeah. Trump put Iran on notice. Okay. Cool. Just in case. No, but did, did he like crib that from a, some other show? I don't know. I mean, no. I think he was just trying to do a Bill O'Reilly impression and came up with that line. Right. As like a. I mean, he is trying to turn the presidency into a reality show. Didn't that like that was confirmed with the Supreme Court nominee, right? That he wanted yeah. to do like an apprentice. Oh my style god! Absolutely. Nonsense. Yeah. Speaking of people to protest against and spaces in which to protest <laughs> them. Uh, Britt is going right. to be leading the main body of today's episode. Britt, want you? Help yeah. us dive in. Yeah, so um, our last episode uh, was when we were in D.C., uh, at, and we were at David's house, and we were just all on the heels of um, the big women's march where we had, you know, half a million people there. And I think all of us at the time were kind of uh, thinking about the march a lot, but then also, you know, it was I, I always am thinking about the layout of Washington, D.C., because it's an interesting city and the urbanism of it. When I'm there, um, so I've kind of developed this in, into kind of thinking about how the way we design public space can affect protest. And uh, really, I, I think different ways that this is discussed, I think, kind of reflect uh, a big divide in, in the way that we publicly consider protest, um, you know, and it, whether we see it as disruption or the, whether we see it kind of as demonstration. Um, so I've picked out a couple different examples through history um, and, and some um, current events that I think are, are kind of an interesting contrast to each other. But I'll lead it off by um, mentioning that the New York Times actually had a, had a recent uh, article on this exact subject in direct response to the Women's March. Um, I thought their um, approach was interesting to, to say the least. 
so the the title is um or i don't know what the title is but uh <laughs> they they say oh uh, a lot of protests and not very much space so they focus on uh the women's march in new york um <laughs> but in typical fashion uh the times's first question in the piece is, is about whether the city can contain the protests um so they're, they're worried about like the city itself rather than the protesters um, so their quote is, can the city accommodate the pace and volume of counter-revolution? Uh, the question was implicit at some of the reaction to the Women's March in New York last weekend, which drew an astonishing 400,000 participants. So first off, this reminds me of some of the New York Times' greatest hits, uh, <laughs> including uh, the time that they ran a piece about sidewalk congestion in Midtown, um, and their takeaway from it was, Oh, that's just the way New York is, you know, so crowded, so busy. God forbid we actually suggest like widening the sidewalks or doing anything about it. It was taken as some weird humble brag about how busy <laughs> and like great it is to live in Big Apple where you can't walk without being hit by a car. Um, and then, of course, who can ever forget the style section publishing a 3000 word piece worrying about the uh, potential overstocking of luxury apartments in downtown Brooklyn. Uh, where they detailed realtors uh, that were, were shockingly considering offering a free month of rent so that anyone, anyone would take a 2500 a month studio apartment in uh, downtown Brooklyn. So I'm glad that Times is continuing its tradition of watching out for, you know, the, uh, the system and the people in charge when it comes to uh, these kind of issues. However, um, <laughs> you, you tell them, man. Yeah, <laughs> man. I, I don't know. The Times has been really disappointing me recently. I don't know if anything's changed. I probably just noticing it more. But anyway, the, the piece did eventually move on to reorient itself slightly um, about the concerns of the people who were actually at the protest. And they highlighted some of the problems of the root of the protest in New York, um, saying that the, the starting point for the uh, march in Midtown, East Midtown, is this place called Dag Hammarskjöld Plaza, which is named after yeah. an old uh, diplomat. Um, yeah, fittingly, right yeah. Fittingly, this is one of these public plazas that was privately constructed. That um, we it was a pops. Yeah, we do it a lot in privately New York. Owned public space. Yeah, um, where um, a lot of times for for uh, skyscrapers, we will say, "Hey, if you build this public plaza um, with your own money, we'll give you like a little bit of loosening of the zoning regulations." So there are a couple of these in Midtown. Um, and then famously, Zuccotti Park, actually, where, where Occupy was, was also in one of these. So I think it's... A, oh, a doesn't Zuccotti Trump Tower also have that in its lobby? It does, yeah. So uh, fittingly... Oh, that's why that little part of the... I was there when they were doing the initial Not My President protests, and they, yeah. they squared off that part of the block. I didn't realize that. Yeah. So fittingly, um, <laughs> even in America, you can't kind of escape private ownership uh, of public spaces, even when you're protesting. But the, the big takeaway is that this is, this is pretty a very small plaza, um, and this is where the NYPD often uh, gets people to start, and then the, all the streets nearby it are extremely skinny, um, which leads to some people getting dissuaded from joining or crowding, um, and they think the, the capacity of the plaza is really only about 8,000, and this is a march oh, wow. that got 400,000 people. Um, so one of the uh, experienced organizers that was at the march uh, said, you know, that it's convenient for the city because it is inconvenient uh, for the protesters. Um, so the article went on to actually talk about how uh, in New York City, we, we've 
used to have a great tradition of meeting somewhat spontaneously, but also planned in Central Park or great expanse of it, but that we kind of lost this tradition when after the uh, fiscal crisis, the Central Park Conservancy was formed and now we expected to have a pristine great lawn in uh, Central Park. And now we no longer do um, these kind of large demonstrations. Is Central Park still run under the city's park service or is it a different, is it its own it's still, it's still run by, it's still owned by the park service, but the Conservancy is the main uh, body that maintains it. And it's okay. run by, you know, the whole philanthropy hustle. I was just pointing to a poster I have in my bedroom, which is actually a picture from the uh, the sixties protests. Right. Yeah. So now we don't, we don't do that anymore. Now we kind of like shove it into our various different public spaces um, and different streets in midtown where we'll shut down, say fifth Avenue. So um, I think this, this, the interesting, it highlights the interesting divide in that um, in some ways it being inconvenient could be considered a feature rather than a bug, depending on what the goal of the demonstration is. Um, if you're trying to make things inconvenient for the city and for people in power and the people that you're targeting through your protest, inconvenience and shutting things down is actually what you want. And having kind of choke points is incredibly important. Like we saw at the JFK protests recently, having a choke point there was incredibly influential. However, it seems the city has... Can you talk a bit more about that? Because I... I knew protests happened there, but I didn't know the logistics. Of sure. It. So right after the execu Trump executive order banning people um, from the seven countries, uh, there was um, a lot of prepared work done by some groups, including Make the Road New York. But they, they led the they laid groundwork to have emergency responses at JFK Airport and other airports, including Dulles um, around the country, where uh, people responded and flooded to. JFK and basically shut down the airport um, and then really really importantly the New York Taxi Workers Alliance also joined and, and cut off um, uh, or basically did a strike and refused to serve um, the uh, JFK airport which was, was also helpful and then Uber broke the strike because Uber's a, Uber's a terrible company that you should not patronize um, but uh, so that was a good example, though, of a choke point where there was a small public space that ever that thousands of people really quickly poured into. And it was incredibly effective at sending a message and keeping uh, and eventually stalling and helping to stall that um, executive order, at least for the weekend. Yeah, and pulling in attention too. I mean, those yeah. news crews like just poured right into right. the airports after that. Right. However, if if um, you're thinking more, if we're thinking more of um, protest as kind of just an act of demonstration, then uh, this this idea of inconvenience is no longer quite as relevant. If you're thinking about protest as something where you go, you hold up your sign, you do a couple chants, and then you go home, and you want it to be convenient kind of for everyone involved, then that that's a different idea altogether. You see this sometimes with people are critiquing people for like taking photos with the police at marches and stuff and pointing out, you know, this is not really a protest. This is more of a parade. This is not really, you know, radical. So I think there's, there's an interesting divide here I want to explore. Um, one is, you know, in D.C., I think the main area that we protested, of course, was the National Mall. This is our most famous site of protests. The Lincoln Memorial, of course, is where, um, you know, the I Have a Dream speech is pro probably the most iconic moment in American activism history. Um, and at the Women's March, we had 500,000 people that completely uh, 
crushed or, or occupied the idea and shut uh, shut down Washington D.C. for the entire afternoon. There's there's a rich history of occupying the National Mall, including um, most famously the Bonus Army, which was uh, a bunch of veterans who marched after World War One, demanding their bonus, which had right. been um, de- deferred until the 40s. Um, and these were veterans who marched onto the mall and then actually camped out next to the Capitol uh, that eventually forced Hubert Hoover to uh, get MacArthur to drive them from uh, the mall and actually led to the death of a couple of veterans. And this was an incredibly costly political move for Hoover that combined with the Depression led to his crushing defeat um, in the election. So that, to me, that is a, a, another instance of physical occupation and disruption of a public space being politically costly to those in power and, and arguably effective. There was later a Bodice Army. I mean, how much of it was the, the public space involved and how much of it was the, the politically charged nature of it being veterans? It was both. It was definitely both. But I think the fact that the veterans camped out right next to Congress as they were voting and eventually voted down the bill was incredibly potent. And then the forcing the imagery of the president ordering the military to forcibly evict veterans was incredibly potent. There was later another march when FDR was president um, demanding uh, the bonuses as well. And uh, Congress actually ended up vetoing or overriding FDR's veto to award the um, uh, bonuses sooner. So twice um, you could argue that the bonus army had some sort of uh, efficacy from physical disruption um, but in both of those instances, it, it required an incredible mass of people occupying a very large space that is the National Mall. Right. On the other end of that, we have the famous instances of like the free speech movement at Berkeley and then like the, the Columbia University protests and the tradition of the sit-in at factories. And those are all about sitting in and occupying a very discreet small space until the people you're targeting give over to your demands or make some sort of settlement much more direct targeting. It is, yeah, it's direct action, right? Um, so I think there's a divide here, though, showing that at a university, you can get a small group of students that can kind of lead something and, and make a direct action plea. For, but in Washington, D.C., I worry about the huge expanse that is the National Mall. And you need 500,000 people or a bonus army to kind of make these kind of demands. So I kind of want to take a step back and wonder, you know, why is the National Mall so big? Why are our cities, many of our cities, not just Washington, D.C., kind of built in a kind of way that actually accommodates huge numbers of people very well? When we were walking on the Women's March, it it was actually kind of impressive in a way that Washington, D.C. was able to absorb 500,000 of us in an actually pretty pretty decent way. And the the police and, and, you know, military did a decent job at kind of uh, shepherding people away, even though it was larger than they expected. Mm -hmm. So I want to go back to... Baron von Hausmann. Ah, yes. So the guy... Baron von Hausmann. old chap. Yeah. <laughs> Hausmann is the guy who um, famously redesigned Paris and has kind of been made into oh. this symbol of a lot of okay. different things. He did it in the era of uh, Louis Napoleon, the Second Empire, it's often referred to. And uh, the overwhelmingly, uh, an overwhelmingly popular narrative is that um, Hausman came in and he took all these small little streets of 
uh, Paris and cut these huge dramatic boulevards in them. And part of the reasoning was that was that it was militarily uh, motivated, that it would make it harder for re uh, rebels to construct barricades and shut down the city and make demands. Um, this that? is partly in reaction to the June Rebellion, which is the rebellion that is in famously in Les Miserables. Yeah. So like that is that is I think part of the reason why that resonates with us so powerfully is because of Les Miserables as well. Well, there's also that is that um, the 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 painting the one with the the French lady with the flag. Yeah, yeah that that comes from like yeah. the original or the '89 okay. uh, revolution. But yeah, like the image of the barricade is incredibly right. powerful to us. However. I think it's important to note there's good reason to expect that this is actually not a correct narrative um, and that we shouldn't just pin everything on Hausmanization, as people call it, um, and that Hausman is actually more of an, uh, very much an actor of his time and, and of his systems that also applied to Washington, D.C., also applied to many American and uh, new cities and applied to New York in some certain ways, and that Hausman was... Uh, of the neoclassical and beau art style that was really popular in the 19th century overall, which really loved these wide, grand boulevards and a resuscitation of neoclassical style that is similar to the plan that Pierre L'Enfant drew up for Washington, D.C., right. which is why you see all these long diagonal um, uh, avenues right. and boulevards in both um, Paris and Washington, D.C. Right. Straight planned, right. gridded, that sort of thing. Exactly. Now there's well, not so straight a lot of times. Not so straight a lot of times. Yeah. There's this like Pennsylvania Avenue when it gets to the White House like sort of juts off at a different yeah, angle. It is that weird. Bugs me. Um yeah. <laughs> but there's this was actually just violently in fashion overall. Right. Um there are a couple of reasons violently, yeah. There are a couple of reasons for this. One Remember that this is this is the era where public health was considered uh, was viewed through like the miasma paradigm, and that is miasma was what they referred to um, filth as and odors oh. and uh, dirtiness. the uh, The main idea of public health was that pathogens and and uh, disease was literally sp spread through uh, odors. Yeah. Um, I mean, and public health and urban planning had. Uh, somewhat similar origins. Exactly. Right? Yeah. So yeah. this is the um, this is the story uh, about you know John Snow in London uh, basically invented data visualization. Wait, not 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 yeah. John not Snow. John of, Snow. Of, okay. Yeah, the original John Snow who actually knew quite a bit. Um, <laughs> so that's that's another story. There are great books and great lectures about John Snow himself. But John Snow invented data visualization basically by breaking this paradigm. But at this time, the idea like. People were obsessed with the garden city and they're obsessed with giving people open space. And people really thought that open space would p make people more virtuous and like better people and better citizens and healthier. So that is a huge motivation of Hausman himself. Um, second is that uh, it kind of fit with the aesthetic of the overwhelming regime of Louis Napoleon himself. Louis Napoleon was kind of this like distant fail nephew of the original Napoleon, who's very ostentatious and kind of fell upwards into power during the um, the political turmoil of the 19th century in France. Yeah. Uh, he was big on the huge monuments and kind of like grand grandeur and really wanted to put the monuments all about. So Hausman was like perfect Why for this. Why does it sound familiar? Does it sound familiar? We'll get back to that later. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and then third, you know, kind of to clinch it, um, that... 
if you look at the map of Paris, um, a lot of these avenues and boulevards are cut through actually areas that one didn't exist at the time or two were incredibly wealthy. The 16th, 18th and 19th arrondissements were some of the most wealthy and powerful areas of the city. And that's where a lot of the avenues around the uh, Etoile with the like star with the, the Arc de Triomphe is on are at. So the motivation that it was all about breaking up blocks is it does not quite stand it's not really the only reason it kind of also served that purpose but in many ways Hausmann was actually pretty similar to mid 20th century traffic engineers in a way where he was kind of obsessed with mobility yeah. and getting people across paris north south east west and then also yeah. adding in like these grand boulevards so this is this is influent go ahead that, um, that myth that uh the diagonal avenues are for strictly military purposes is also uh, talked about with DC a lot. But, right. you know, a lot of times it or it was inspired by Paris, uh, but it wasn't like uh, I, I had heard once that they wanted to, like, put cannons on, like, Washington Circle, and it could shoot in all the directions down the avenues there, but that was never yeah. uh, the point of it. And actually, like, there's some cool, uh, and maybe you're getting to this, but there's, there's some cool uh, allegory, I guess, of the American system of government, which was this new novel thing when DC was being built in the city plan here, when right. um, Thomas Jefferson had his first draft for um, the federal city, and you know Thomas Jefferson was this you know good architect and planner and did all these things, but his plan was like, okay, the um, Congress is here, the president's house is next to it, the court is right there. There's your city. It was like maybe five blocks. Yeah. Um, but L'Enfant had a had a much more grandiose plan, and the the distance between the Capitol and the White House was actually kind of a radical notion. Right. Um, that even though they're equally important in the government, they should be separated by that long expanse of Pennsylvania Avenue right. because there should be some ind- independence between those two branches of government. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Exactly. So yeah, this this entire design school of thought very much is a product of like enlightenment aesthetics and it is really the product of the aesthetics of a small group of the elite at the time um and much of it persisted and really the reason why is that um design built environments have an incredible amount of inertia uh par- the these changes in paris were incredibly unpopular at the time uh seen as gauche and the architecture was eventually seen to be bad De- but uh, define gauche please gauche well, funny enough, gauche actually uh, derives from left in French, referring to the left bank, which was seen as the unfashionable and uh, kind of gaudiness. Okay, yeah. So it, it is not very popular aesthetically over time. But things didn't change because throughout, um, you know, the Paris Commune and then being defeated by Prussia and then uh, subsequent depressions, it just cost too much to change things. Right. This is absolutely true in the United States as well. Yeah, I, um, Boston and older cities come yeah. to mind when, when it comes to trying to, to, to uh, revolutionize right. more organically built scenarios. Yeah. And, and an interesting grids. contrast is also the city of San Francisco, who after ah. the 1906 terrible earthquake was built, was, you know, raised to the ground. Yep. Daniel Burnham, famously of the Colum- World Columbian Exposition, um, and the Beaux Arts movement had this grand plan where he actually wanted to do a Hausman esque thing to San Francisco, and he got the green light. But then it was just politically too difficult, even with everything raised to the ground. That's crazy. And they just rebuilt it everything makes as it was. So much more sense too. Yeah. It, it a, 
okay, the hills in, in San Francisco are cool, but the fact that they just bulldozed a grid through it just yeah. drives me nuts. Didn't, but it didn't stop us doing it in Manhattan, but we can rant about the grid in Manhattan another day. Yes. Yeah. So um, that's kind of why a lot of our cities are built this way. It's because yeah. it's, it's an aesthetic. Um, it's a very American aesthetic yeah. also. Yeah, it's an Enlightenment aesthetic. Um, yeah. You can compare it, contrast it elsewhere. I think it's important to dispel the narrative that this was done only for military reasons. Dispel with the fiction? Yeah, dispel with the, the fiction. Um, so um, that I kind of want to uh, now compare it to another moment in history take a pause on that a little bit and take a trip to the southern hemisphere uh, the city of buenos aires which i think buenos aires is a really fascinating city because it's kind of a mishmash of this enlightenment aesthetic but also the spanish colonial city the spanish colonial city uh was you know always built on a grid you can see this throughout latin america um the first thing they did was set up a a perfectly square uh, grid with a zocalo uh, in the middle, a public square. The El, El Centro or whatever that is? Is that what that is? Yeah. Okay. Socolo, the most famous Socolo is in uh, downtown Mexico City. And that's kind of like, you know, the center of all life in the colonial Latin American city. However, Buenos Aires also had incredible Francophilia um, in their own time. Uh, and, you know, it's a joke that Argentines are obsessed with being seen as... Uh, European, but it comes from somewhere. So prominently in uh, Argentina, you know, you have a big street called Diagonal Norte, which is a diagonal street that cuts through it and goes to some of the more... Uh, yes, it goes north? Yeah, it starts from the center uh, square, center plaza, which is the Plaza de Mayo. And it goes north and it actually incidentally leads to a lot of these old French-inspired buildings. But the Plaza de Mayo is... Um, really the focus of our story here. This is the most important place in all of Argentina. Hmm. On the Plaza, the Plaza de Mayo is the center of where all the most important finance in Argentina is. It's also where their White House is. Their White House is the Casa Rosada, which is uh, means the pink house, because it happens to be pink. This is the presidential palace. And this is the place where the Perones, both uh, Juan and Eva, have made their famous speeches from the balcony. This is very direct mass politics here, where they're literally talking to the people from uh, their own presidential palace on this plaza. This is where everything is, this is the center. Which I think is a fascinating contrast to Washington DC, where you can barely see the White House now. It's been slowly moved out and it's kind of this compound. Yeah. But. I think part of it though is that they, when they closed off and pedestrianized Pennsylvania Avenue in front of the White right. House, that was actually an important step in, in giving people demonstration space there. Right, but I I, I would um, highlight. But looking at the the plaza in Buenos Aires, it's, you can clearly like basically walk up to that building. Yeah, so you can. It it is it is very much a functional plaza that um, grew in political significance. So the, arguably the most important group that has ever met or, or known most for the Plaza de Mayo now is a group of activists called Las Madres de la Plaza de Mayo. And these are uh, a group of mothers uh, of disappeared students during the military regimes in the 70s and 80s. This is the period of military dictatorship where student act- activists would notoriously just go away, disappear. They wouldn't be formally executed, but they were disappeared by the military for their activism. It reminds me of what happened in Brazil during their dictatorship. It's, yeah, well. it's it, the exact same yeah. thing. Um, same kind of style of government. 
Um, and the Plaza de Mayo actually, you know, occupies this really interesting space in this movement and that these mothers uh, actually began meeting in the Plaza de Mayo in, in 1977. And during these first meetings, um, and here I'm, I'm quoting from a scholar named Fernando uh, Bosco. Um, during these first meetings, women who had previously encountered each other only in police stations, government offices, churches, and prisons as they searched for information about their children gathered in the plaza to exchange information about the status of their individual cases. As the Madre sat on the benches in the square pretending to be ordinary women, suspicious police officers and security agents threatened them with arrest for loitering. The Madres were forced to walk. And so they walked hand in hand, talking, supporting, and comforting each other, and exchanging information about possible actions under the watchful eye of the police of, of this you know, authoritarian regime. Um, and then these walks eventually were the origin of uh, the Madres' weekly public meetings and the marches that still take place to this day, every Thursday in, in Argentina, even after the democratization. Um, so, and this has actually spread throughout all of Argentina, actually global, and as, as a human rights, uh, a famous human rights um, movement. Uh, and this is kind of a famous movement now for the importance of public ritual. Um, and it's, it's kind of evolved, I think, in an interesting way, where initially occupying the square was seen as an act of defiance towards the military regime, that you were not afraid, um, and that you would go right up to the White or the Casa Rosada and, and make your presence clear. Now it's kind of actually um, morphed into an interesting method of uh, more of the demonstration model, kind of a sign of solidarity between mothers of uh, silenced political dissidents across the world, and kind of, um, you know, a, a uh, act of solidarity for the mothers themselves. Um, however, it's interesting that it's easily duplicable across Latin America um, because every city in Latin America has a public square. So all of the mothers of this movement are still called the Plaza de Mayo, the Madres de la Plaza de Mayo, even if they're in Rosario or instead. Um, and that is that has incredible potency because that is seen as the center of Argentine politics. Yeah. Yet it's an exportable model that they can create in these networks. Yeah. And there was even a moment where one of the um, the activists interviewed in this in this piece of in this article said one of her most treasured memories is when they took a trip to Cuba and they spontaneously did the ritual in one of their squares in Cuba. And it was in many ways the same message, but easily exportable and a sign of solidarity. Um, basically anywhere they go. Yeah. Um, so, you know, when I first looked into this, I, I have to admit this is not exactly the takeaway I expected to find. Um, you know, I expected to, to, to find it a little bit more of a story of direct action. But actually, this is, I think, really a, a really motivational story of the importance of ritual and solidarity over the time and over, uh, you know, because a lot of these activists have gotten older uh, and you know, died, and but they've continued this network throughout time, yeah. Um, and really found a, a formula for um, demonstration that works. Now, I want to bring this back home to the United States, and uh, sometimes there's different criticisms of of different protests in the United States for being only demonstrative, and I think Las Madres show us that 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 can serve a purpose and can yeah. be important. However, I'm pessimistic about the United States because I'm pessimistic that we have any public spaces that are as potent as the Plaza de Mayo. The first, the two most famous locations I think of the United States are the wall, the mall in Washington and then Union Square yeah. in uh, New York. 
And, you know, in the case of the mall, um, there are often protests planned there, and, you know, even quite large ones, but it has become such a controlled routine that it requires really astounding numbers for them to move the needle much. Um, And I think, importantly, no one is living their daily lives near the mall. It's a destination in and of itself, and it's a huge gaping expanse that feels almost decidedly non-urban when you're standing in the middle of it. It's really a large field inside of a large city. Yeah, that's, it's almost the stage for that kind of action. Exactly. It was intentionally built to house... Right. It fits which I think it can be a powerful notion, considering that it's... it's right. The it fits perfectly into the conception of protest as routine and demonstrative, mm-hmm. um, but with none of the powerful effects that I think you can find with the Madres. To achieve any um, specifically because it's a smaller space. Or? Yeah, exactly. I said to to achieve this any sort of similar sort of effect that the Madres have that walking in the circle for a half hour in the plaza in the National Mall, you'd have to walk a mile long yeah. circle. Can you, can you give us a good idea of how big um, these these plazas are in Latin America to give us a sense of scale? I would say the Plaza de Mayo is about the size of Union Square. Okay. In New York City. That's it. Yeah. Really. Yeah, because they. I mean, they they were built. Uh, you know, pre-automobile. Interesting. Um, they were, uh, and so I guess comparing it now to Union Square that you bring it up. Now, you know, Union Square on face value seems more promising, yet I'm still pessimistic. Um, you know, once this was the site of incredible labor militancy, but now much of it has been kind of converted into a park, yeah. and there's a, a small, slightly disorienting, in my opinion, pedestrian plaza at its south yeah. that features some tables of tchotchkes. Like people walking or pedestrian like. Uh, a little uh, bit of both, both. I yeah, would both. Say, yeah, yeah. Um, it's, it's it has been converted into right. like a, a recreational park. Right. Really, I or can it, see why the optics of protesting there can get a little yeah. tricky because the central part of the park is really just full of benches and winding paths right. and statues. And at its south, it you know it features these tables of tchotchkes and then like uh, you know a showtime dance troupe that a bunch of tourists are always watching, and then you know the the patented Union Square. Uh, drum circle. So there's kind of like a depressing Potemkin Epcot feel to it, in my opinion. Um, but, you know, even here when we muster the numbers to take over Union Square, I think it lacks the symbolic potency that the Majesty of the Plaza de Mayo have. Um, you know, there, there are no seats of power or finance around Union Square. You know, surrounding it is this constellation of, you know, every familiar chain from Whole Foods to DSW to Panera. Um, you know, ultimately crowned with this absurdist installation they have there now that's really just a convoluted clock that tells the time in a weird fashion. <laughs> um, so, you know, gone are the days when this neighborhood was Klein Deutschland and it was filled with working class uh, German immigrants and, and swelling crowds represented a pouring out of workers from the adjacent shops, tanneries and workshops. Um, now it's kind of this weird Potemkin thing. So, you know, if the National Mall represents the state's ability to kind of set the parameters and control dissent, I think... The Union Square is kind of a dizzying representation of the diffuse nature of late capitalism. So you can chant while looking up towards the signs of Best Buy and Barnes and Noble and Burlington Coat Factory and feel the vague notion that they're all in on this somehow. But you also feel how targeting any one of these in particular would send you down the rabbit hole of, you know, cranky, aimless anti-consumerism and the mold of the Green Party. So it's well, Go ahead. I think the bigger problem is, um, you know, there's... That's an issue, but there's almost a luxury that we have, being people in New York and D.C., of having a somewhat centralized public space at all yeah, to demonstrate right. it. Yeah, right. Exactly. Uh, quick shout-out to um, Dan Reed, who's a fellow writer at Greater Greater Washington, but he was talking about, uh, back in November, 
Um, the D.C. area had huge student walkouts. I'm sure they happened elsewhere in the country, but um, uh, students at D.C. public schools and also public schools around the region had a walkout right after the election in protest. And the D.C. students, you know, had somewhere to go. They flooded the mall. It was actually a pretty large demonstration. Um, but Dan is talking about uh, Montgomery County high school students, students in Rockville, Maryland, sort of the outer suburbs. That part of it is urbanized, but right. um, talking about how when you don't have a centralized public space in, in these more these suburbs, yep. that you can't, it, it takes away a fundamental part of right. democratic action. Ferguson, Missouri, same issue. Yeah, I'd, I'd also yeah. point to places like Los Angeles where there is no distinct city center or public spaces that make sense for protests. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. especially when your primary mode of, uh, transportation is, is the car. I mean, can you imagine <laughs> trying to find a space in Los Angeles to protest and having God knows 200,000 people try to drive a car to one spot? Well, incidentally, LA set its ridership record for the Metro on the women's March day, which is interesting. Where did, it, where did they go? I think they went to, well, so they, I think they, they went to Pershing square. I think. Okay downtown um but, and actually some of these students in montgomery county needed a police escort to get them down some of these streets because they right. were just uh, so many roads. right and, and in a lot of cases the only place that made sense to demonstrate was at the mall right right which you <laughs> poetic in so many ways um but that's also why it's sh shutting down um freeways in uh ferguson i think was the go-to tactic because that was the i think that's pretty powerful Oh, yeah. for, highway shutdowns are great. Um, and I think, you know, it, it's telling when you elicit response out of people saying, oh, can't you just go protest somewhere convenient? It's like, nope, that is very much the opposite of the point, my friend. Um, but yeah, so... To, to have that inconvenience be right. uh, suddenly entering the lives of people. Right, it's the urbanist, or it's the built environment equivalent of saying, you know, I think if uh, Martin Luther King were alive today... It's like no, get out of here. Um, <laughs> but David, you you um you've kind of yeah. I, I'm glad you brought that up. You've kind of anticipated where I'm I'm trying to close with, um, in that there is this uh, dispersion or dispersal of Americans that I think you know as urbanists as listeners we all know about, um, that has had an incredible impact on all of our lives. I mean how it it at the very least, made it so everything made in the 90s was about feeling suburban teenage angst. So right. we're all familiar with it now. But, um, you know, remember the Louis Napoleon, right? We were talking about earlier. We are talking about Napoleon. how... Yeah. Oh, yeah, that guy. Yeah, and how, you know, this thing about ostentatious monuments and kind of being gaudy, it sounds a little familiar, right? It did bring me back to um, a piece a lot of been, a lot of people have been going back to which is the 18th Brumaire of Louis and Napoleon, which is uh, one of Marx's most famous works. It's the piece that famously opens with the quote, history repeats itself, uh, first time is tragedy, second is farce. Um, and it's a striking piece. You know, Marx has uh, not gotten any of a better writer since he died. It's still kind of a slog. But if, um, you know, you set aside a couple cups of coffee, it's fascinating. Um, and I, I kind of want to highlight the piece uh, that really, the part of it that really stuck out to me, where he's kind of talking about this atomization of French society that drove this terrible, gauche, unpopular Louis Napoleon somehow to win a plebiscite and be in charge of the, uh, of the French Second Empire. 
Um, so he says, he's talking about the French smallholding peasantry. And he says, a small holding, the peasant and his family, beside it another small holding, another peasant and another family. A few score of these constitute a village, and a few score villages constitute a department. Thus the great mass of the French nation is formed by a simple addition of homologous magnitudes, much as potatoes in a sack form a sack of potatoes. Insofar as millions of families live under conditions of existence that separate their modes of life, their interests, and their culture from those of the other classes, and put them in hostile opposition to the latter, they form a class. Insofar as there is merely a local interconnection among these small holding peasants, and the identity of their interests forms no community, no national bond, and no political organization among them, they do not constitute a class. They are therefore incapable of asserting their class interest in their own name, whether through a parliament or a convention. They cannot represent themselves. They must be represented. Their representative must be at the same time must at the same time appear as their master, as an authority over them, an unlimited governmental power which protects them from the other classes and sends them rain and sunshine from above. The political influence of the smallholding peasants, therefore, finds its final expression in the executive power, which, which subordinates society to itself. To me, that is the revanchist suburban middle-class Trump voter, which has been separated physically from the rest of us. Yeah, and culturally, I guess you could say also. Culturally, they have nowhere to protest. They don't, they're incapable of seeing a common space because there is no physical common space. Yeah, oh, I, I see what you're saying. I think it has been interesting to see um, a protest movement arise. I, again, I should say, because this happened with the Tea Party, yep. but uh, arising in uh, congressmen's town halls. I think that is, yeah. even though it's not, it doesn't have the same weight as a public space with a lot of history, but I think that is a very sort of American form of that. Yeah, true. I, I'd say that maybe what we're unfortunately rediscovering, not that it should have been forgotten in the first place, but... Class consciousness, baby! Well, also that, I, <laughs> I, I, also that I suppose. <laughs> what I was going to say was the importance of common spaces for, for all of us to come together. And I mean, I, I, I think um, talking about the central squares in Latin America um, as a New England person reminded me a lot of um, the idea of the common. Yep. Um, which is, um, for those of you not from colonial New England, um, was this space in the middle of a, a, a colonial town or village in New England um, where uh, everybody could share this one space. It was owned by the public. Uh, it's, the, it's the origin of that phrase, uh, the tragedy of the commons, where you know, if, you, if you take all of your cattle to feed in the commons... Um, then all the resources are depleted. Yeah. But, and then but, you see that everyone else is a Pats fan, and you go, oh, this is oh, fucking tragic. This is, this is the worst. <laughs> no, but um, everybody owned that space, and it was a place for the town to come together and, and meet. Um, similarly, uh, a lot of communities to this day in New England, um, they, they, they rule their town. They organize their town government around town hall meetings where um, sort of similar to participatory budgeting, you show up. Um, there's a board of selectmen that kind of mediate the discussion, but there is a common space for everybody to come together. And I think maybe yeah. Americans have lost sight of that and in, in, in the way that they organize their public space and their public proceedings. Yep. I think this kind of goes back to what we were talking about a couple episodes ago, that urbanism is not just a big city movement. Like the, these very simple tenets of like public space is important. Public ritual is important. 
um, can and should apply to all cities of all size. Yeah, yeah. I there's a there's an organization that I think I plugged in that episode. Small small towns or strong towns, stronger oh. towns. Yeah, they're great. And um, Dylan and I were talking the other day about how the the nostalgic appeal that people have for small town America oftentimes involves a vibrant main street that is walkable but but we knowing your neighbor that sort of thing and we we um i don't think have it have developed a vocabulary or or awareness of guests to to quantify how our isolation or, or physical isolation has made that nostalgia particularly false jane jacobs yeah that's a point that that one yeah too yeah yeah and that like the way that new york is is organized what with the grid and uh these very dense uh apartment buildings true yeah yeah definitely block size is too long yeah yep all right well yeah that so that's that's my shot on uh public space and protest which is only only a small slice i mean there's so much scholarship on this stuff you could read forever even about uh las madres uh, really fascinating movement that has continued to this day. Um, also, the urban design of Latin American cities is one of my favorite subjects because I, I, I don't know, Latin America is a really cool place. I love how niche that is. God, I love this podcast. Um, is it niche if it's an urbanism podcast? Going I mean, the whole thing is niche, which yeah, is what yeah, I love yeah, about yeah. it. That's what I mean. Yeah. But um, um, yeah, can I, I can I can I request that? The, the last few minutes of the podcast is spent just kind of going through and saying, if you want to get active in your community, um, what it is you can take away from this podcast uh, for, for organizing in your local community. So, oh, I got I got a plug. Oh, definitely. Let's, let's do this. Join the Democratic Socialists of America. <laughs> they're they're uh, I, I'm a recent I, I joined a couple months ago. Um, they've got a lot of really exciting organizing committees. They work in coalition with a lot of people in New York, including Make the Road New York, who was really instrumental in setting up those JFK protests. Yeah. Um, I was just at an emergency protest on Friday that it happened to be very close to my work, so I got out and joined them. It was a good time. Um, they have a labor branch. They have a newly minted feminist socialism branch. They have an electoral politics branch that I'm involved with. Ooh, that's cool. They have an immigration action branch. Um, it's a good group of people. And most importantly, it's it's a, a low barrier to entry, I think, yeah. where everyone's interested in solidarity. And you can find other people who are doing really good uh, activism work that are, you know, not necessarily even in DSA. Yeah. So that's that's my recommendation. That's great. So I, I mean, oh, they have a calendar. They have a calendar um, at the new website called socialists.nyc that uh, has every single emergency and planned uh, protest on it for like the next two months oh, at any given time. I gotta check that out. I gotta get more protests on my schedule. Um, but I guess if if you're a local organizer or somebody who wants to get involved, I guess the thing to take away from this podcast, in addition to um, all of these great organizations that we're naming uh, is, you know, think strategically about how your, your city or town looks, how it's organized. So if you're in a big city like New York or D.C., take advantage of those spaces. Try to find a space that um, you can fill up. You know, don't don't try shut to grab right or shut it down. Right. Don't don't try to grab 100 people and try to go to the National Mall. That's not going to work. Um, or, you know, if you're in a small suburban town, um, maybe ta- think about doing one of these sit-ins that you have. Uh, and also just advocate for better public spaces. Yes, yes. And public spaces for all sorts of things. I think the thing that uh, 
can be a bit frustrating about New York in terms of demonstrations are that, um, like we were talking about with Union Square, there aren't always size appropriate venues for protests. Um, so, you know, we don't necessarily have a national mall. Yeah. Uh, you know, Central Park isn't quite appropriate for that in a lot of ways. Yeah. Yeah, there was a proposal or some architects wrote to de Blasio asking him to accelerate the pedestrianization of Union Square West to help with that. Yeah, that, that could help. And, and they want to add to expand the uh, public plazas program, which has been going since Bloomberg, which could also help. Um, but yeah, I mean, they, they'd help, but they're not going to solve anything overnight. And then, you know, of course, find find your local organizers already because they're pros yes. and they're they're they'll know what to do. Word. Well, I, I think that's a pretty good place to wrap up, guys. Yeah. So thanks for joining us. This was Three Awkward Dudes Talk About Urbanism. And uh, we'll see you next time. And little willow, wind's gonna blow you hard and cold tonight. Life as it happens nobody warns you willow hold on tight nothing's gonna shake your love take your love away no one's out to break your heart it only seems that way follow time will heal your wounds grow to the heavens now and forever always came too soon nothing's gonna shake your love take your love